come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you have given us tonight to come and to worship your holy name and also to join in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. We thank you for the assembling of ourselves that you have commissioned and commanded. And Lord, we do obey and we rejoice in the fact that we can sit next to people who are not necessarily related to us by blood, but are related to us by the power of your blood, by your spirit. We sit next to brothers and sisters in Christ and we thank you, Lord, that you have expanded our family by calling us into uh, your family by adopting us as your own tonight lord as we look into your word i pray that you would help me to decrease so that you can increase that you would help me to become less so that you can become more i pray that you would move me out of the way this evening and that your your word would shine through that the servant that you used to bring forth the doctrine of sola fide that his his stance for the truth would shine through and that we would therefore be encouraged by men who and women who stood for the truth. And then we would know that the same spirit that dwelt in them dwells in us. And that we can make that, stain, that same bold stance for your word and for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Romans. And we'll just stay there in Romans chapter 1. I won't give you a verse just yet. We'll get there eventually. Romans chapter 1. I want to thank you for coming out tonight to what we have, have been doing for now the past four weeks. We have been going through a study of the history of the Reformation. If you've not been here for <clears throat> at least last week or the week before, I will encourage you gently and lovingly to go on to our rbcbakersfield.org website so that you can catch up with us and find out where we are and so that as we go into the rest of this story, you're not completely lost. If you're coming tonight and you haven't been here at all, you will be completely lost. Um, but prayerfully, you'll be able to find out where we are as we get to the end of this. Amen. I also pray that as we go through the history of the Reformation, that you're encouraged, that you're, you're encouraged and that you have gained a, a greater love and appreciation for the faith to which you hold. Um, knowing that the, you stand in a long line of men and women who have stood for the truth of God's word. And I, I, I heard a question the other day about, so did the, the Christian church start in the 16th century? Have any of you wondered that yet? So did the Christian church start? Okay, we did not start in the 16th century, just so that you know. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to, to point out biblically, when did the church really start? I believe it started with the first person who placed their faith in Christ or placed their faith in God. That the true church are those who place their faith in God. And we have therefore always existed. So we can point back maybe all the way to, to Adam even after his fall. And there could be a great debate on that one. But then also to people like Seth and to people like Noah and so on and so forth. The church has always been. The church has always been. We've deviated and we have, uh, unfortunately, there has been heresy that has crept in, namely the Roman Catholic Church. But we have always been. So don't look back to a certain century in which we began. 
look back to the long line of men and women who place their faith in God. They are the true church. And you fall in that same line of godly men and women who have placed their faith in God. You are that church. Amen. Amen. The last time that we were together, we saw Brother Martin and I kind of left you uh, on a cliffhanger. I will let you know that that is uh, the best way to get someone to come back to church. Leave them hanging. (laughs) I'm just playing. It's the best way to tell a story, though. I remember being a fourth grade teacher and I would tell kids a, a Bible story and I would say, and then come back tomorrow. And they go, no. And they all looked forward to the next day. Well, the last time that we were together, we, we were looking at uh, Martin Luther as he was selected as one of the two monks of his monastery to make the, the glorious trip to Rome. Do you remember that? And we talked about when he got there. In his excitement, he was not expecting to see and experience all the things that he saw and experienced. One thing I want to remind you of is that Martin Luther would have a a crisis at least every five years in his life. Well, Martin was so excited to make this pilgrimage to Rome. Rome was one of two of the most holy sites in all of the world in which someone could make a pilgrimage And upon making that pilgrimage, they would be blessed. Now, a pilgrimage was this. It was when a person or a traveler would travel from afar. They would take a journey to a so-called holy place. Now, typically, this journey would be made on foot to that holy religious site. Many times when the pilgrim would visit this holy, holy site or holy city, they would make sure that they made their way to a grave where a saint was buried, or a cathedral that was supposedly holy, or at least to a significant place where something significant had happened. Amen? They also would visit a place within the cathedrals, or within the the churches, that was called a reliquary. Everybody say that? Reliquary. A reliquary was a section within the cathedral that housed a collection of Relics, relics, as we've been talking about, we've mentioned some of these relics before they would be the hair or they would be hair from John the Baptist's beard. It would be a stone from the rock of Golgotha, etc., etc., etc. As a matter of fact, my wife and I were just looking on eBay and she randomly typed in relics. You can buy a relic right now for three forty nine. Very low price. These cathedrals housed many of these relics. Now, what was the purpose of these relics? They were used as means to which someone could receive an indulgence. And if you remember the the purpose of an indulgence, the purpose of an indulgence was to take time off of your sentence. Where? In purgatory. So if you were to make a pilgrimage, you could receive a number of indulgences. If you were to visit a holy site, you could receive a number of indulgences. If you were to bless your eyes or maybe even touch a relic, you could receive a number of indulgences. Now, you could not see or touch a relic without paying a price. Now, it's almost like going to the fairgrounds and they have the 100 foot lobster. 
And, you know, you got to pay $2, though, to see the 100-foot lobster. Well, in the same way, you had to pay a certain fee in order to bless your eyes upon each of these things that we're talking about. Now, if you can imagine you believing in purgatory, you believe that the biggest thing that you could ever do was make a pilgrimage. So, for Martin, this was huge. He gets to go to one of two of the most holy sites in all of the world. He gets to go to the place where it is said... Peter and Paul's bones are buried. He gets to go to the place where it is said there are so many relics that you'll virtually spend no time in purgatory because of all the times that you'll be able to receive indulgences from all the holy things that you'll see. Well, as we mentioned last time, Rome was the place in which you could bless your eyes on the visible center of the Roman Catholic Church, meaning this, that you could actually see the church. This is the center of all churches. This is the church. Again, Rome was the place where supposedly, remember this, supposedly the bones of Peter and Paul were buried. The other holy site was where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So we have Rome and Jerusalem. Again, to have the opportunity to make the trip from Germany to Rome was the most exciting experience Martin Luther thought he was ever going to have in all of his life. Well, the lightning bolt experience in which Luther was clinging to the rock and crying out for St. Anne to save him happened in 1505. This trip that Martin Luther took from Germany to Rome took place in 1510, just five years after the lightning bolt experience. Now, Martin thought this was going to be the most exciting moment of his life, but it turned out to be one of the moments that caused the most disillusionment that he'd ever experienced. When Martin comes to Rome, Martin is looking forward to seeing the holy city. And instead, he sees exactly the opposite. Rome is no holy city. Matter of fact, Rome kind of rivals that of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Martin walks up and comes into Rome, he sees greed. He sees corruption. He sees that 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 people are not really worshiping God. They're taking advantage of people for money. Martin decides that he's going to go worship the Lord and goes to one of the cathedrals there to, to worship the Lord. When he goes there, he's in shock of what he witnesses rather than being in awe. Of being in a holy city and being in a church and, and taking the mass. He's watching the priest as they're taking the mass. And if you remember from the first lesson, Martin, when he stood in front of the mass and he prepared to, to present the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he couldn't move. He couldn't speak. He couldn't say anything. He was frozen. And as he's in this church, he's watching the priest and they are running through the mass. It's said that they would go through six mass. Masses in one hour. And Martin is sitting there in shock. How could you guys? And they, not, as fast as they were getting them in, they were getting them right out, but not without collecting offering. Martin was in shock. The priest would go through that service like a drive through service. He was again. How could they be so cavalier about this holy moment? Another thing that Martin noticed is the sexual immorality in the city. And to Martin's dismay and to his disgust, the sexual immorality was not outside of the church. 
It was inside of the church. The priests of Rome commonly engaged in sexual immorality with prostitutes, both female and male. As a matter of fact, the Pope of Rome had a his own. um, I don't know what those places are called, but a place where prostitutes are. That was just for the priests to go anytime they like. Martin saw this and he was outraged. Do you not fear God? Do you have no fear of God? You go to to these these sexually immoral things. You sleep with these people and you go back and you you hold the holy things of God. This man, Martin, he was a lawyer. He knew the law and he was beginning to look at every single one of the priests as, as nothing but filthy, dirty lawbreakers. But perhaps the most significant moment of disillusionment came when Martin visited the Lateran Church in Rome. If you've ever heard of the Lateran Church of Rome, it's still a place that exists today. And it's still a place where where um, many people from all over the world go to visit. It was the one place that Martin Martin wanted to bless his eyes upon. This was the main church of Rome before St. Peter's Basilica. Now. It housed what is known as the sacred steps. You ever heard of the sacred steps? These were the steps that were recovered by the crusaders when they went to Jerusalem. They literally, when they went to Jerusalem, the the crusaders, they took apart, they dismantled the steps piece by, by piece and brought them to Rome. What are the sacred steps? The sacred steps are the steps that went up from the went from the bottom to the top of the judgment hall in which it was supposedly said that Jesus Christ stood upon when he stood and was condemned by the crowd and by Pontius Pilate. It was believed that these were the very steps that the Lord Jesus Christ stood upon when he was condemned to be to be crucified. Now, these steps also became a focal point of indulgences. Here's why. It was said that if a pilgrim came or anybody came to those sacred steps, they could climb up those steps. And if you just looked at the right point of the day, you could see the blood drops of the Lord Jesus Christ still present on those steps. And you could kiss those steps or or, or those blood drops. You could touch those blood drops and you would receive so much time off of purgatory. The pilgrims would come to this site. It's still there today. When you get home, YouTube, Sacred Steps, Rome. It was said, and this is what they still do today. They would climb up those steps on their hands and knees. Every step that they climbed onto, they would say a Hail Mary and an Our Father. And they would also kiss that step and then move on to the next step. Look on YouTube. Look how many steps there are. If I would have had overview notes I would you would be able to see those things. There's masses climbed onto those steps. And while you are there, there's also a sign that tells you to this day how many indulgences you will receive and time off a of purgatory for reaching the top of those steps to this day. <clears throat> Martin sees the steps, the place where he wanted to go, and he begins his journey up those steps. Our father. Hail Mary, full of grace. Next step, our father. Hail Mary, full of grace. Kiss the step. Move on up. As he was traveling up those steps, all the things that he experienced while he was in Rome began to to flash through his mind. 
The flash services that were simply meant to collect fun, funds, the rampant sexual immorality, the, the selling of indulgences for the forgiving of sins. And before you knew it, Martin was at the top of those stairs. He finally gathers himself, looks back at all the stairs that he had climbed and, and all the masses of people that are climbing up. Hail Mary, our father, kissing step after step. And he looks at all of, of what he's seen in Rome and he says, who knows? If all of these things are true, doubt began to set into the heart and the mind of that young man. And it began to fester and it began to grow. Martin travels back to Germany, disillusioned, confused, frustrated, but still faithful to the promise that he made to St. Anne. But Martin was not the same. Not long after Martin had returned from Germany, Martin was elected to move from the major city of Erfurt. Remember, that's where he was in the, the monastery to the little village called Wittenberg. Now, Wittenberg, when you spell it, is spelled with a W. It's, it's, it's pronounced Wittenberg, but it's, it's looks, it looks like Wittenberg. OK, and Berg is B-E-R-G. Wittenberg meant little white hill, population of about 2,000. Diameter was one mile by one mile. Martin Luther was literally going from Los Angeles to Shafter. Now, during this time, this village, though, was being established by a man. This is an important name. Was being established by a man named Frederick the Elector of Saxony or Frederick the Wise. He's known by both names, Frederick the Elector of Saxony or Frederick the Wise. If you're taking notes, write that name down because he will become a major player in the Protestant Reformation as we see things progress. This man, the reason why they called him the Elector of Saxony, he was one of the electors who had a vote, a deciding vote on who and who would not be the emperor of Rome. He would be like a delegate during voting season. Does that make sense? So he had a lot of political power, and that's going to play in more as we get more into the story. He was called Frederick the Wise because he refused to take a bribe from Pope Leo X. Leo X wanted Frederick to run for office. Frederick refused. Pope Leo decided, hey, I'll give you uh, something special if you run. And Frederick still refused. And so therefore they called him Frederick the Wise. Now, Frederick had a dream. His dream was to create a cultural center right in the middle of Wittenberg. He wanted that cultural center or that university to rival any other university in Germany. So he began his search and he went throughout the country of Germany going from monastery. Now, listen to how this all plays out. Going from monastery to monastery, asking if the monasteries would elect their finest scholars to come and teach at his new university in Wittenberg. Well, Martin Luther was going through this confusion. Martin Luther was going through disillusionment. And if you remember who his father confessor was, Dr. Stapowitz, Dr. Stapowitz loved Martin Luther and wanted Martin Luther to understand God's grace. So Frederick the Wise comes to Dr. Stapowitz and says, do you have anyone here at the monastery who can teach Bible? Well, Dr. Stapowitz knew if Martin Luther could get into the word of God himself, he would see the grace of God for himself. So he elects Martin. Martin, you're going to be the new teacher of Bible at the University of Wittenberg. And Martin Luther is saying, 
Wittenberg? Why are you sending me to Wittenberg? With no explanation, Dr. Stoutwood says, it's God's will. It's going to be the best thing for you. So he goes. Chosen by his father confessor, he makes his way to Wittenberg and becomes the new professor of Bible there. Now, not only did Frederick the Wise want to create a stellar university, but he also wanted to make people's time worth it when they came to Wittenberg. So he didn't want to attract just scholars. He also wanted to attract all people from everywhere. So the best way that he could do that was go and collect relics. So he decided, I'm going to make the greatest reliquary that Germany has ever seen. So he travels for at least three to four years all throughout Europe looking for relics. It is said that he found 19,000, over 19,000 relics. And if you were to count the days that you would receive off from blessing your eyes upon those relics, those days off of purgatory would be 1,902,202 and seven months. That's how many days you would receive off of purgatory. One million days, 902,202, or years, sorry, not days, years off purgatory. So, that obviously made people start to look at Wittenberg and say, hey, there's another place that I don't have to travel so far to Rome to get to that's right here in Wittenberg. Some of the, some of the, the relics that he acquired were, check this out, he was able to get a piece of straw from the manger of baby Jesus. He was able to find a piece of hair from the beard of Jesus. He was also able to get a piece of the cross that Jesus was crucified on. He was also able to get a piece of stone from the Mount of Ascension. And last but not least, of the many relics that he received, he was able to acquire a branch from the burning bush of Moses. Wow. <laughs> Don't forget, he had a tremendous amount of political power. Now, when Martin Luther comes to Wittenberg, he comes as the new Bible of, or the new professor of Bible. And he begins his lectures in the book of Psalms. Martin taught his way through the book of Psalms, but he taught in a, in a new kind of way. There was a teaching method at that time that was popular for over a thousand years. It was called the Quadriga. The Quadriga. If you need it, I'll put it up on, online and you'll find it. And this is the, there was a four step, which is why it's quad. There's a four step method to biblical interpretation during that time. And here's what it was. Number one, this is for all my biblical uh, teaching guys that came out. Here's how they used to interpret scripture. Number one, you look for the literal sense of the text. Number two, you look for the ethical meaning of the text. Number three, you look for the mystical meaning of the text. Did I say that slow enough? Number three, you look for the mystical meaning of the text. Do you look at scripture right now and say, what's the mystical meaning going on here? And here's the last way. You look for the allegorical meaning of the text. Meaning that, that okay, it doesn't literally mean this. There's an allegory in this. There's, there's a deeper story going on here. This actually means something else. That is the way in which people interpreted the scriptures during the Middle Ages. Wow. 
And this would lead to wild, imaginative interpretations of the scriptures. Do you know that there are many ministers today who still preach that way? And who still will pull things out because it sounds, there's a deeper meaning there. Flower doesn't mean flower. It means money. You know, just something weird. Luther would say that that system of interpretation made the Bible like a waxed nose. One could twist it and turn it to make it say whatever they wanted it to say. So Martin came up, or Martin began to understand that there was a more proper way to interpret Scripture. And he, he called it the census literalis. Census literalis, which meant this. You find the literal sense of the Scripture, and you use the rules of literature... To interpret scripture, meaning this, that you interpret historical narratives according to the rules of a historical narrative. That you interpret a a book of poetry according to the rules of poetry. So that whenever you look at a specific text, you interpret it according to the rules of literature. Meaning you take it literally based upon the rules of that writing. Does that make sense? Okay, so for instance, as a deer pants after the water brook, so my soul longs after you. That's poetry. What is he obviously saying? Is he saying that he's a deer? No, No. he's saying he's using kind of an example, right? This is what a metaphor. You can do that. Now, listen, just so that we know this. There are no allegories in Scripture. There is not one allegory in Scripture. There are metaphors, there are parables, there are no allegories. Does that make sense? Okay. Noun is a noun, verb is a verb. Martin wanted to eliminate all mystical interpretations of Scripture that came before him. So, now he wanted to look at the plain sense. This is how he was teaching there in Wittenberg. Now pay attention. Here's where it gets important. As we said before, Martin would go through a life-changing experience at least every five years. Well, Martin now is coming up on the year 1515. Now, if it were me, I'd be kind of scared every five years because something crazy is going to happen, right? (laughs) As Martin is teaching there in Wittenberg, he leaves his studies in the book of Psalms and the Lord leads him to the book of Romans and says, we're going to now teach from the book of Romans. This is known as the Tower Experience in the year 1515. In the beginning of his lectures, Martin began to read through the chapters that he was going to be presenting. And he did not get very far before he ran into Romans chapter 1, verse number 16. It says this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now here is where Martin began to have his wig twisted. For in the right it for it for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. When Martin first read this text, he began to look at other commentaries to kind of support some of the things that were going on inside of his head, but he began to struggle. Why was he struggling? Because verse 17 spoke about the very thing that terrified Martin Luther more than any other thing in the entire world. Verse 17 spoke about the very thing that was driving him mad. Verse 17 spoke about the very thing that he was trying to escape. 
verse 17 spoke about the very thing that he was trying to find comfort from. The righteousness of God. It was the very thing that caused this man, Martin Luther, to cling to the rock and cry out to St. Anne. It was the very thing that caused Martin Luther to join the monastery. It was the very thing that caused Martin Luther to beat his body. The righteousness of God. It was the very thing that caused him to be standing frozen as he presented the mass. It was the very thing that caused him to, 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 cause, to cause him to stand there and confess his sins for hour after hour to his father confessor because he was in fear of the righteous, the righteousness of God. It was the very thing. That he felt one day he would be destroyed by when he stood before God. This righteous God is going to strike me dead because I am undone. I am unrighteous. I know the law. I've broken every law. And this righteous God will have his judgment on me one day. We said this. I think I was talking to Sister Ophelia after the service. That he took this seriously. We don't. We sin in, 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 in not ways that, that, that are normal. We sin in ways that we plan sin. And we have no fear of the righteousness of God. We'll actually make plans to sin. We'll go somewhere where we know we shouldn't go. We'll do something with someone that we know we shouldn't do. In advance we plan these things. With no fear of the righteousness of God. We watch things with no fear of God. We say things with no fear of God. We purchase and buy things with no fear of God. I said to Ophelia and we said to each other, he's not crazy. He just really believed these things. And we don't. He was afraid. He feared God. He was haunted by this righteous God again who would judge him because he was not righteous enough. He knew he could never satisfy the righteous demands of God. He knew this, that the ultimate barrier between Martin Luther and God was the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of Martin Luther. But as he was reading this text, something began to happen. He began to see what Paul was really saying in this text. The righteousness of God was being revealed from faith to faith or faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, now Martin Luther, if you can imagine him sitting at the table with no one around him, just him and his word and saying, what does this mean? A righteousness that is that is by faith and it is from faith to faith and righteous will live by faith. What does that mean? And Martin began to see that Paul was speaking about a righteousness, not of us, but a righteousness of him, of God. Paul, had, I mean, Martin Luther had always thought it was about becoming righteous so that you could be righteous. And that's what he had always thought. That's why he went to the monastery. That's why he went to Rome. That's why he stood frozen before the mass. Because he was trying to attain something that he would never attain. And he's reading the scripture and now seeing, I think it's the opposite. 
I think as I'm looking at the scripture, it's not talking about those who would be actively righteous, but it's speaking about those who would be passively righteous. Martin was seeing that this was a righteousness that you couldn't earn. It was a righteousness that could never be earned. Rather, it was one that was received by faith and nothing that you could do could earn that righteousness and nothing that you could do could pay back that righteousness. It was the righteousness of God that reconciled you to a holy God, not the righteousness of you that reconciled you to a holy God. It was the righteousness of God that reconciled you. Martin began to look through his Latin Vulgate, which is what he studied from. But on the other side of his desk, he had now a Greek text. The Latin was translated from the Greek. So he looks at the Latin Vulgate and it says, Eustafacare, which means this, to make righteous. Here's what that means. The teachers before him, the Latin fathers, they taught that justification was when God, through the sacraments of the church, the seven sacraments, when God, through penance, when God, through your works of righteousness, God makes you righteous one day. You work to achieve it. Yes, you need grace, but not grace alone. You must also work. And you could go your whole lifetime and you probably will go your whole lifetime and not achieve the righteousness of God. So you'll pay the rest of it off in purgatory. How long that'll be? Who knows? Let's just hope that you indulged in the treasury of merits and that you paid enough to not spend so much time there. But Martin begins to say, Let's look at the Greek text. And when he looked at the Greek text, he saw a beautiful word. And I might pronounce this incorrectly. Daikonosune. Which meant to make, not to make one righteous, but to regard one as righteous. Or to count one as righteous. Or to declare one as being righteous. Martin's eyes, when he heard this, they were open for the very first time. You mean to tell me Paul is not talking about a righteousness in which God says you have to become righteous, but instead he's speaking about a righteousness that God gives you for nothing that you can do on your own, simply by faith? God gives you grace, and you don't have to earn it. It's yours by faith, and faith alone, there's nothing that you have to do. You mean... Sola fide. Yes. Martin began to say, okay, I got to check at least one more source before I go all the way with this. And he goes through his commentaries and he finds a commentary by Augustine. The commentary is essays on the letters and the spirit. And in that commentary... He sees that Augustine makes the same exact comment that the righteousness of God is made available by faith. 
Martin said that when this happened, he was saved by the power of the Holy Spirit for the very first time. He said that he learned that it was an alien righteousness. It was a righteousness that was not his own. It was extra canos. It was outside of himself. It was the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteous life, the righteous death and the righteous resurrection for the glory of God to which that righteousness is now given to you by faith. Why? So that you can say there's nothing that I can do to earn this. There's nothing that I can do to pay this back. It has been purchased on my behalf so that I did not have to purchase it because I never could. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough good works to ever do what only Christ can do. He said, when I first discovered this, I was born again by the the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open. And I walked through You will not understand the rest of this man's story if you don't get this. You won't understand why he stood the way he stood, why he fought the way he fought, why he wrote what he wrote. If you don't get this moment. You see, when someone is truly regenerated, there's no going back. When someone is truly regenerated, there is no compromise. When someone is truly regenerated, there is no playing with sin or recanting the truth. Instead, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, opened up this man's eyes. And he understood for the very first time what the gospel was. And he was going to proclaim that until his dying day. Luther would say later... That he once he understood that we are made right with God, not based upon our own righteousness, but based upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he began to see it on every single page. That every time he opened up the scriptures, he began to see this is God. This is all God. It's the righteousness of God and not my own. Almost like when we began to see God's sovereignty and salvation, we began to see it on every single page. It's right there. It's right. It's everywhere. Now, Martin was going through this transformation and something was happening inside of him. But something was also happening in Rome. And we'll find out what that is next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We ask, God, that you would be glorified in our lives as we also stand for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel that saves the gospel of justification by faith alone. We thank you for that great truth. No, it did not start with Martin Luther. Of course not. He is just like us who by grace discovered that great truth. Oh yes, he raised his voice aloud to make this truth known. But again, he stands in a long line of men People like John Huss, people like John Wycliffe, people like Thomas Bradwardine, people like Athanasius, people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and James and John, the Lord Jesus Christ, people like Abraham, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. We ask God that you would 
If you have not done so already, give us that understanding that it is by faith and faith alone that we are saved. And if we do have that understanding, let us never get tired of hearing it. Let us never be, be bored of hearing that we are justified by faith alone, apart from any work that we can do in and of ourselves. We thank you for this in the Lord. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I believe that part one of uh, Luther is up.